And um, yeah, I look forward to, to speaking to you this morning. Uh, we're continuing uh, our story, um, sorry, our, our series, which is called um, God's Story, Our Story. We, we live in a society that deeply values freedom, right? Freedom. We, we hear about it a lot. Uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness has been a, a slogan for modern times ever since the writers of the American Declaration of Independence coined that phrase way back in 1776. Um, between then and now, it's actually wonderful to think of the freedoms that have been fought for and gained as a society. Freedom from coercion and oppression, freedom to make fundamental choices in our lives, freedom to choose a home, to choose a partner, to choose a job, a way of life. Freedom is considered basic now to our happiness. This morning I want us to think about what does it mean for us to be free? Because as we continue this series called God's Story, Our Story, we're exploring the Bible and its life-bringing message to us. The Bible is God's story. And as we read, God shows himself to us. He comes to us person to person, providing what we need to live our lives as men and women created. In. So when we read the Bible, it's not just information we're taking on, but there's a sense of personal formation going on in our lives. While it can be intimidating to read as a beginner, the aim of this series has been to inspire spiritual hunger in you guys to read God's word for yourselves and to discover how it's a launching pad that springs us into encountering God. So as people who, who are in a part of a society that cares a lot about freedom, today I want to look at what does the Bible have to say about freedom? Do you remember that Roald Dahl story, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Yeah? If you haven't read the book, hopefully you've seen one of the movies. I think there's been a couple that's, that have come out. And there's a scene where all the children who found a golden ticket finally get to, to be able to enter Willy Wonka's top secret chocolate factory. And, uh, and the, a door opens and there's a big staircase and... Um, there's a lolly wonderland all around, complete with a river of chocolate. In some ways, to me, that's a bit of a picture of the way the world speaks of freedom. Um, it says, we have built a society that aims to give you unprecedented measure of freedom to, um, to you, to its people. I have all the opportunity to pursue what I want. And that's a very good thing. Like those children, we can rush into our world and enjoy it. Almost every freedom that we ever dreamed of is available. And so our culture, it's kind of become like a vast supermarket of things to satisfy every desire. But like in the story, things go wrong, don't they? Um, when, say, when my greed causes me to slip into the river of chocolate, suddenly I'm drowning and I'm not so free. When my vanity and my self-centeredness misshape me into something horrible, like a blueberry, I'm not so free, am I? When my chase for respect and admiration shrinks me to a pin size, 
or when my anger overtakes me and I end up trapped in it, where did my freedom go? When my mantra is, I can do what I want, it's not long before we get entangled in a mire of our... So freedom's an interesting thing because it's right there available for us and yet how easily we entangle ourselves again. One of the reasons why I read God's story, the Bible, and I want to make it my story, is because God shows me and guides me into what I'd say is a very different kind of freedom. The Bible opens my heart and mind to a freedom that's unique to the way the world sees freedom. And I want to talk to you a little bit about what that is today and get you inspired to read for yourselves about it. So what we're going to do for, to start is I'm just going to take you through the story that we've just heard Tessa read um, from Acts. And, um, and I, so Acts 16 tells this story about Paul and Silas, two Christian missionaries in Philippi, which is a Roman city. And this is in the time of the early church. So these are people who are living in the light of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And there's people who, who are walking around with Paul who had met uh, Jesus. So in this story, there are people who are in bondage and there are people who are free. And the question that we should be asking ourselves is, who in this story is really free? And the story begins with Paul and Silas going into... Um, going to a place of prayer when they were accosted by a slave girl. And because the girl could tell people's fortunes, she had made good money for her owners who hired her out to read palms, perhaps to provide entertainment at business conventions, that sort of thing. She was possessed by a demon. And however we choose to understand this, the description suggests that she was unbalanced that she was out of her right mind, that she was taken over by, by something dark. And I, I, I think in this woman there's a real picture of enslavement, of anti-freedom. She's in the grip of mental illness, possessed by darkness that she can't shake. And she's also someone who is not a person, but a piece of property. And so her torment was even used for another's gain. She was paraded around for commercial benefit. So she took to following Paul and Silas around, shouting at them, saying things about them. These men are servants of the Most High God. They have come to tell you how to be saved. I'd say that it's not inaccurate to say how to be free. They've come to tell you how to be truly free. After some days of, of having this woman follow them, Paul's had enough. And in Jesus' name, he cures her. Here is a young woman who's been chained her whole life to the hell of demon possession, and now she's free. There ought to be rejoicing. Thank God she's free. But no, her owners are not free enough to rejoice. When the owners saw their source of income draining away, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the city officials. And they don't come right out and say that their self-interest is at stake. Instead, they say that the whole city is being threatened. These men are Jews and they're disturbing the city. They advocate customs which are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. These guys aren't acting like good Romans, they're arguing. Their freedom 
and their ways are messing with our way of life and we don't like it. We are citizens of Rome and these guys are clearly citizens of somewhere else. They're clearly led by some other. Then the crowd falls in behind the business leaders of the town and they're allowed to attack and beat Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are thrown into the back cell of the town prison and the jailer takes their feet and locks them in iron shackles. So the liberators have become the imprisoned. In Jesus' name, a young woman is set free from her hopeless state and now two of Jesus' people get jailed in the process. Paul and Silas are in prison, but to any passers-by, it doesn't sound like they're languishing. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Did we hear that right? These guys are having a praise and worship session after being beaten and thrown in prison. They're not regretful of the day's events. They're not worried about their faith as most of us, if we admit, would be. They seem to be confident in God working all things together for good for those who love them. And if that's not surprising enough, things get even more unusual. The earth heaves, the prison shakes, the doors fly open and everyone's chains fall off. The jailer wakes and when he sees that the doors are open, he's horrified. And knowing what happens to jailers who permit their prisoners to escape, he draws his sword and prepares to do what by his logic might have been considered the honourable thing for a disgraced jailer. Paul shouts, don't do it. We're all here. We're just singing. And the jailer says, but you were bound in chains. Um, Now you are free to escape. I can imagine Paul saying, we prisoners were more free than you thought. And you, our jailer, are more chained than you. But now you are free to escape. And so the jailer asks, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to be free like you guys are free? And that very night, there's this sudden shift and they, the jailer takes them home to his house. They share the word of God with him and his household. The jailer cleans their wounds and cares for them. What a turnaround. And they share a meal at his house. It's a real picture of, of togetherness. Of, and his entire household is baptized. And then at the end of the story, the city officials wind up with egg on their faces. The Roman way that they are so bound to keeps a lid on freedom so that they can stay in charge. Only the Roman citizens are shown rights and freedoms in this world. But when they find out that Paul and Silas are actually Roman citizens, they're embarrassed and they're worried at the bungle that they've made of things. And so they're forced to apologise. So by the end of the story, hopefully you can see that everyone who first appeared to be free, the girl's owners, the city officials, the jailer, turned out to be enslaved. And everyone who first appeared to be enslaved, the poor girl, Paul and Silas, are free. So let's talk a little bit about what Christian freedom is. And, and I hope that today, as we go through um, these, these few steps, that we're not just thinking, what is it? But that we're actually thinking, how can I move more towards this Christian freedom? Um, how can I act on this today? So true freedom is not freedom from responsibility to God and human in order to live for myself. 
but it's actually the exact opposite of that, okay? So true freedom is freedom from myself and from the tyranny of my own self-centeredness in order to live for God and for others. So there's a complete shift in understanding what freedom is as a Christian. We've seen this today in Paul and Silas. We see it in Jesus' life. And you may have recognized Christian freedom, hopefully, in some of the Christians that you know and look up to. Do you want that kind of freedom in your life today? Our first thought might be that it's unattainable. No, sadly, there, there are not enough Christians these days who are real beacons of Christian freedom, um, as it's described in Scripture. Um, we may initially sort of look at Paul and Silas and look at their bravery and their just you know their ability to um, to work with God, and we and we're we're a bit over we're a bit overwhelmed in awe, and we think, oh, they're out of my league. Um, but if you intend to obey Jesus Christ, you'll decide to take steps to live in the freedom he offers you. What might those steps look like? What will set us on this road towards freedom? So I'm just going to give you three, um, three aspects of Christian freedom that can get us not only thinking about it, but also acting on it today. Jesus says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me... So the first thing that I want to talk about is this whole idea of losing your life. At first, this sounds like a dreadfully painful thing. And quite frankly, it's a massive challenge for us. What Jesus is saying when he says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. He's saying that we must not make ourselves and our survival the ultimate point of reference in our world. I must not in it in effect, make my desires paramount. Because when I do that, it actually shrinks me as a person. If I'm filled with myself, then I cannot be a large-hearted person with any capacity to grow and reflect God's nature. And so I become limited and not... F- There's a, uh, I've got a, a story from, from my past to tell you. I, when, I was, um, when I turned 18, I was pretty excited about about drive, being able to drive. And I actually had already bought a car about six months before and, and I'd you know, been working on it. And it was a Humber Vogue, okay, which was from the 1960s. So this was in the ni- um, early 90s. And, and so this is a 30-year-old car that I'd bought for $3,000. And, um, and I loved it. It looked really great. It had chrome on the front. It was looking really stylish. Um, but it was also a bit of a bomb. Like it, there was quite a few things that, that went wrong with it along the way. And one day I was driving in the country and um, I was with a friend and then we could just see that there was a big storm. And so we're driving along and, and it starts to rain. I put the windscreen wipers on and that's okay. It's going along. And then after a while, the, the rain starts really pouring to the point where you think, oh, I, maybe I should stop and wait to calm down. And... Um, and then all of a sudden, my windscreen wiper stopped. Okay, so heavy rain going at about 100. And, but my passenger's windscreen wiper was still going. So what I had to do was I, I just quickly said, you're in charge, grab the wheel. And, and so I'm, I'm, 
I'm using the you know, I'm, I'm braking and, and everything, but I can't see where we are. And I'm like, just pull us off the road. And so I had to we had to talk and work it out. And what a scary moment. You're in charge, and all of a sudden you're handing over the wheel to your mate who you know has got it, but you're also thinking, I wish I could see. To me, that is a is a is a great picture of what Jesus is saying when he says that you you need to give up your life for me and then you will find it. I had to hand over the steering wheel to the passenger to get where I needed to be. And uh, when we lose our life to find it, we let God hold the steering wheel of our life. Um, there's a verse from 2 Corinthians which says, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more as we are changed into his glorious image. So this speaks of a veil being removed when we go to to God's Spirit for, for for our direction. Um, which is a similar thing to what I've been saying. When we are filled with the Spirit of God, we have God's unlimited, infinite nature at work in us. And suddenly we have God's freedom to live into the impossible. With God, nothing is impossible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Suddenly there's this new sense of freedom that comes upon us. But even as Christians, we can choose to keep God out. We can hold him at arm's length and we may say with our lips that God is the Lord of our lives, but in reality we are still well and truly at the helm. Jesus is saying you simply cannot get there on your own. You can only let God take you there. It's about being awakened to God's presence and it's not at all about obsessing over our own performance in life. And it seems that only the humble can receive this gift and surrender to such grace. So lose your life to find it. That's the first step towards Christian freedom. How might you do that? Well, I've got a few um, what-to-do steps, a few actions. So you can retrain your thinking by studying and meditating on Christ himself and on the teachings of Scripture. So there's a good start. You can learn about the lives of other saints who have walked this road before you. Uh, You can seek out others who are on this journey towards freedom for mutual encouragement. You can earnestly pray to God that he will work to change you so that you can be able to. These are all real things that you can do when you choose to. All right, so our next step, giving is at the heart of freedom. So realizing that giving is at the heart of freedom is a new is another step towards Christian freedom. The most widespread misunderstanding is that when is when we assume that giving is giving up something. So sometimes when you give something to someone else, you feel like I'm being deprived or hey, I'm really being sacrificial here because I'm giving what I have to someone else. When our main orientation is towards ourself in life, then we do feel that giving is like an impoverishment. We feel depleted by it. You know, oh no, I've given something away. I've really lost out. When we give with this approach, 
we might think, hey, look how good I'm being, sacrificing what's mine for the sake of others. Aren't I good? But inside we can be thinking, oh, damn, just lost that really good that I kind of want. For the person who's living in freedom, giving has an entirely different meaning because giving becomes our highest expression of who we are. In the very act of giving, I'm experiencing my strength, my wealth, all that God has given me, all that God's done in me, I'm now able to give something to someone else. So I'm giving because God is placing in me something worth sharing. And surely that approach will fill us with joy. I begin to experience myself as overflowing towards others. And so giving becomes a joyous thing and more joyous than receiving because it's the expression of how alive and I've become. Can you see how there's a really big change between I'm giving, being good, sacrificing to, wow, God, you've worked in my heart and you've worked in my life. And now when I give, I I feel like I'm being, I'm, I'm more alive. I'm more myself than I ever could have been without you. There'll also be times when it's not easy and it doesn't immediately fill us with joy to give. Experiencing God's care in those moments frees us from the burden of just feeling like we always have to look out for ourselves um, and allows us to keep giving. So love of God and love of neighbor gradually pulls us into our... Just look at Paul and Silas. They knew what to give and when to give it. They gave healing to the slave girl. They gave salvation to the jailer and his household. And then they gave a challenge to the city officials. The sign of a free and healthy Christian is that I live to give. Once you learn to give, it will help to break and disempower every entanglement of the soul. And it's only in such self-giving love that we can be authentically free and truly human uh, and, and have a truly human existence. Um, that's the only way that we can find. So what can we do to be to be free, to be free in this way, um, to see that giving is at the heart of... Well, I can practice giving. It's a pretty obvious one. Give of myself. I can intentionally shift away from looking out for number one as the basis for my life and I can look at what do I do in my life? How can I... Where, where can I give? What can I give? Um, and I'm not just talking about money here. I'm talking about all, all the things that are a part of your, your life, all that God's doing in you. The third step, we're up to the third step today, and that is what I call resisting the world's pull. And I've got it in two steps today. So the first bit is resist the world's charms, okay? So uh, the last step to move you into Christian freedom is to resist the world's pull. There's a man called Adolf Eichmann, and he was a member of the Nazi SS and, and a key administrator of the Holocaust during World War II. After World War II, he escaped to Argentina, but um, the, the Jews found him and they brought him back to Jerusalem. When he was caught in the early 60s, he was put on trial in Jerusalem for his war crimes. And as you could imagine, it would have been all over the newspaper and people were expecting to see a monster. Here's one of the key administrators of the Holocaust. But what they found was an ordinary man 
who just never thought much beyond doing what he was told. And uh, there was a, a lady called Hannah Arendt, and she's a Jewish political writer, and she wrote a book about that trial, um, which is subtitled The Banality of Evil. And in the book, she's basically saying evil is boring, okay? I know when we watch TV, we think evil sort of seems exciting. It does on TV. You know, oh, it's a mass murder movie. I'm going to watch it. Or, you know, like we, we kind of are drawn somehow to, to people who are doing bad things. But in real life, evil is boring. More often than not, evil is just unthinking, agreeing to the values, the norms, and the expectations of the world and the institutions we work and serve within. So if we just unthinkingly walk into our life and just, yes, sir, yes, sir, all the way through, then, then that's a boring existence and that's an existence where we, we are more likely to find ourselves being caught up in, um, in the evil of that are, that, that's, a, that's part of our world. And so in the Bible it speaks of resisting the world's charms um, 1 John 4 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Uh, a, a saint that I really love, St. Francis of Assisi, he says, Wear the world like a loose garment which touches us in few places and there lightly. So um, if you know anything about his life, Francis of Assisi was well and truly someone who resisted the world's charms. Um, he came from a wealthy family and, and, uh, and he rejected all of that um, in order to pursue his life with God. So resist the world's charms. Christian freedom helps us to realize that there is freedom gained in not following the spirit of the day. We are free when we resist and engage thoroughly in subversive, playful, creative and loving and bold ways um, with our world, rather than just following and being in step with everybody else. We can see again how Paul and Silas resisted. Um, while most were probably indifferent towards the slave girl state, Paul and Silas resisted by doing something about that. They resisted what was considered the norm, caring for even the jailer when they were miraculously freed from jail. What a loving resistance that was and they resisted the norm by calling the city officials boldly to account rather than just skulking off and feeling intimidated by them and their violence so you can see how resisting the world's charms it doesn't mean resisting hiding away it really is a, a bold engagement with the world and the last the second part of um, resisting the world's pull is ride out the world's harms okay Charms, harms, get it? Nice nice little rhyme. So things are not always as they seem in Christian freedom. Jesus preached, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. But then Jesus ended up dying on a cross, which doesn't seem like a very free place to be. But do you know what's even more surprising is that Jesus' death on the cross turns out to be the most radical act of freedom ever. Do you see that? Do you see how, how Jesus saying those words, if, you, you know, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed, seems to not 
fit with his death. But then when we understand his death, we realize that was a radical act of freedom. He was willingly laying down his life so that we might live. A seeming poor turn of events in our lives can actually mean that God is doing something wonderful. We resist the world's pull when we don't succumb to the world when we're under stress. So Paul and Silas's freedom landed them in prison, but somehow they maintained joy and peace, even with singing. Paul and Silas were content in prison because they knew that they were in the middle of a God story. They just knew God was at work. And so they were content to suffer hurt and mistreatment and were on the lookout, even amidst all that, to bless and show grace. That, my friends, is freedom. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And I would just wish that we could have that in our lives. So Paul, when, when writing to the church in Philippi, um, in Philippians, he says, I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. How can we be like that? What steps could we possibly take to be, uh, to be able to resist the world's charms? Well, I can pay careful and prayerful attention to the culture that I'm a part of, the culture at work, the culture at home, and I can look for opportunities to resist things that aren't right, things that, that are in their own boring way evil or wrong. I can find encouragement even in tough trials, learning to trust that pain doesn't mean failure. And in fact, God just might be um, doing something incredible through that. So in conclusion, Christian freedom is calling us. It's calling our little congregation to be a showcase of what the living God, can we be so faithful in our life together that the world can look at us and see something that they are not. Can we do that? I think we can with God's strength. And I encourage you now as we come into a time of response, um, just to, um, to spend some time with God, asking yourself this question. How is God prompting you today towards a deeper experience of freedom? How is God prompting you today towards a deeper experience of freedom? And then you could also write, how will you respond? What will you do about it this week? Because there's nothing better when you're challenged to actually write down a response and commit to doing that. So I'm going to leave you with um, a little bit of space now. You can grab your uh, response cards and I encourage you to write something down um, to answer that question. How is God prompting you today towards a deeper experience of freedom? Thanks.